since chapter 10 of this letter, Paul has been speaking to the Corinthian Christians about his apostolic credentials. He's been defending his status as an apostle, not for his own sake. It wasn't as if Paul lay awake at night, worried about what the Corinthians thought about him because it bothered his self-esteem. Paul was concerned about what the Corinthians thought about him because their negative thinking towards him reflected worldly thinking in their minds. So Paul is going to continue on with this theme into chapter 12, where he starts at verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of, my infer- of, I, of, I, of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I forbear, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be. Or hears from me. In verse 1, Paul says that now he's going to come to the topic of visions and revelations of the Lord. You see, if you were with us last week, you saw how Paul was dealing with what we might call the super apostles. Those people among the Corinthian Christians, whether they lived among them or whether they just simply were visiting them, but these most eminent apostles, as he refers to them in one place, or super apostles, so to speak. They were sort of the high and mighty, flashy, very upfront, uh, charismatic type of fellows who gained a following because of their personal credentials, not because they were representing the truth. And no doubt, many of these super apostle types among the Corinthian Christians claimed many spectacular spiritual experiences. Maybe you know the type. Maybe you've heard them from pulpits or you've heard them from the television set. You know, the kind of people who get in front of you and spend quite a bit of time talking about their own spectacular spiritual visions and experiences. And, well, you know, one day I was caught up to heaven and I was walking up and Jesus said to me, and Jesus was seven feet tall, or Jesus was, you know, 90 feet tall, or Jesus was this, or Jesus was that, and all sorts of things. No doubt these sort of super apostle types claim these sort of spiritual experiences. Well, Paul has been reluctantly boasting since the last chapter. So now he says, okay, let me talk about my visions and revelations. Now, if you notice, he starts out the chapter by saying, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Paul is reluctant to talk about these things. He's tired of writing about himself. Paul doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about Jesus. But the worldly thinking which made the Corinthian Christians think so little of Paul was also making them think little of Jesus, even if they didn't perceive it. So he says, well, I've got some visions and revelations to tell you about. And then he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. Paul describes this experience, first of all, in the third person rather than the first person. He doesn't say, I myself had this experience. He starts out, well, I know this guy. You know how it is when somebody comes to you a problem. Because, you know, I've got this friend, and they're having a problem. And before a long time, well, it's them, of course. And that's sort of how Paul's saying. I, I know a guy. Some people have wondered if Paul really is speaking about himself, or maybe he is describing somebody else. But if you take a look at verse 7, he begins to transition into the first person singular. He's referring to himself, and he uses the word I. So it's pretty clear that he's referring to himself throughout the whole passage. But then why does he use the third person at all? Because Paul, in describing this remarkable spiritual experience, is describing just the kind of thing that the super apostles among the Corinthian Christians would glory in. I mean, I could just see the scenario. One of these most eminent apostles among the Corinthian Christians to get him to say, brother, let me tell you about my vision. Now Paul's saying, you know what? I got a vision too. Let me tell you about my vision. You see, when Paul described his humble experiences in the last chapter, remember that? Just take a quick look at 
verse 25 of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles. You get the idea, don't you? Paul's saying, this was my resume. A lot of trouble, a lot of pain, a lot of peril. Now, when he was talking about his difficulties, he didn't mind using the first person. But now... He didn't want anybody to think that he was glorifying himself like the super apostles like to glorify themselves. And so he says, I know a man in Christ, and do you know the dating he puts on it? Who, 14 years ago. Now, of course, this dating does little to help us to know exactly when this happened, because there's all sorts of debate as to exact year when 2 Corinthians was written. But the important thing to notice is that Paul kept quiet about this affair for 14 years. He had this amazing spiritual experience. And I mean amazing. And you know what? He didn't write a book. He didn't go on a speaking tour. He didn't get on television. He shut up about it. He kept quiet about it for 14 years, and now only very reluctantly is he coming before the Corinthian Christians and revealing something about this vision. Now, just stop right now and think in your mind when you've heard other people relate visions and marvelous spiritual experiences and things like this that they like to relate. You know, there I was sitting and a light flashed and I got cold and then a chill went through my body. And then they start describing, you know, all the experience and all the, you know, the EBGB kind of things that go along with it. You would expect that Paul's going to get into that. And I'm sure that's how the most eminent apostles describe those things. Keep that in mind, because what Paul describes is going to be very frustrating to us if we're expecting that. But he'll get on to that. So, okay, I had this vision, verse 2. Whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Paul doesn't really know if he was in the body or out of the body during this vision. It seems like in his mind, either one was possible. I mean, many people ask, well, what really happened to Paul? Was he carried up bodily into heaven? Or did his spirit separate himself from its body and go up there? Which one was it? Nobody knows. The whole point of the passage is Paul himself didn't know. What, am I going to say what it was? If Paul didn't know, then I sure don't know. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he says, I'll tell you what happened. Verse 4. Excuse me, verse 2. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, when he uses that phrase, the third heaven, it doesn't suggest different levels of heaven. Although this is what some people have taught, some ancient Jewish rabbis. And matter of fact, that happens to be the teaching of the Mormon church, that there's uh, three different levels of heaven. You know, I don't know, good, better, best, or I don't know, you know, medium, medium well, well done. I don't know what the three <laughs> levels of heaven are, but it's something like that. That's not what it's talking about at all. Paul is using terminology that was common in that day, which referred to the blue sky as the first heaven, the starry sky as the second heaven, and the third heaven was the heaven where God lived. And so Paul says, I was caught up to heaven as we think of it. We wouldn't use the same terminology as Paul. You might say, you know, uh, the atmosphere, outer space, and the place where God lives. Paul was caught up to the place where God lives. And this is remarkable. Paul had a vision, an experience of the throne of God, just as Isaiah did, just as the Apostle John did. Paul was caught up to heaven and had a heavenly vision. He was there in heaven, in the body, out of the body. He doesn't know. But in some way, he was caught up to heaven. Matter of fact, he's even more specific here in verse 4. And he says how he was caught up into paradise. He identifies the third heaven as paradise. Now, the word paradise is taken from a Persian word for an enclosed, luxurious garden, often only found among royalty in the ancient world. The, the literal idea was it was the sumptuous dwelling place of a king. And Paul's saying, I was brought up to God's sumptuous dwelling place, to heaven, the courts of heaven, the throne of heaven. This is where I was. Wow, Paul, tell us what you saw. Tell us what you heard. Look at what he goes on here in verse 4. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. Thanks a lot, Paul. 
It's like, I went to heaven, and oh, I heard things that are just inexpressible, and it will tell us what they are. I'm sorry, it's not lawful to utter them. I'm not saying anything. In describing this heavenly vision, I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't relate anything that he saw. Not a single thing. There's not a single thing that he says he saw. And he only gives the most shadowy description of what he heard. And when we think of this, we realize how different Paul is than most of those who describe their so-called visions of heaven today. First of all, Paul waited 14 years to say anything about the incident, and he only says anything about it now reluctantly. Secondly, he does everything he can in relating the story to take the focus off of himself. That's one of the most galling things to me when I hear people relate these stories. By the way, somebody may have a vision of heaven today. I'm not saying that they can. I'm not saying that it's impossible. And I'm not saying that it might not be extremely edifying to that individual. There may be somebody here. You've had a remarkable vision of heaven. You may feel that God's taking up and you've, been in the, you've had a vision or some kind of in the body, out of the body, you don't know. You are in the very throne room of God. Can I tell you, God bless you. If it edified you, if it built you up, praise the Lord. Can I just say, keep it to yourself. Really. I think you're only going to confuse or stumble or lift yourself up by declaring it. If God's given you some profound spiritual experience, keep it to yourself. You don't need to advertise it. You realize how subtle pride is in that? You know, it starts out just wanting to relate it, but then pretty soon you notice people react to you like, wow, you must be spiritual. You might, wow, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you know, maybe I am, you know, well, let me tell you about it, and let me tell you about this. There's so much that God does in our lives that, you know what, maybe he just wants to keep it between us and him. So Paul had that heart in himself, we notice also that he doesn't even bother at all with breathless descriptions of what he actually experienced. Instead, he says, says nothing of what he saw, and he says of what he heard, only that they were things not lawful for man to utter. There's nothing self-glorying, self-aggrandizing, or foolish in the description of his experience. So what did Paul hear? We don't know. There were inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. God didn't want us to know, so he didn't give Paul the permission to speak. I think it's always interesting. Whenever you run into something like this, just start reading a bunch of commentaries. They can't resist the temptation to start telling you what Paul heard. Can I just tell you? I'll tell you what Paul heard. He heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. That's all we need to know. Now notice this. This was his experience. And now he says in verse 5, Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Now Paul is essentially saying that this nameless man who had the vision, I say nameless guardedly because Paul knows that we know it's him, but he's sort of playing a game here. He's essentially saying that this nameless man who had the vision really did have something to boast about. It's like Paul saying, listen, if I wanted to brag, I could, I, could tell you, I could tell you what I heard. I could tell you what I saw. You would think, ooh, he's, he's more super than the super-duper spiritual uh, uh, super apostles. Wow. But Paul says, you know what? I'm not going to boast in what that man might boast of. You know what I'll boast in? Look at verse 5. In my infirmities. That's what he did all last chapter. Uh, can I brag, Paul says? I got whipped and beaten more than any other apostle. I've been in prison more than anybody. I've been hungry more and cold more, and I've worked harder, and I've labored more, and I've done all this. That's my glory, Paul says. That's what he'll glory in, in his infirmities. Then he goes on to say, verse 6, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. Now again, Paul is sharply and humorously contrasting himself with the super apostles among the Corinthian Christians. He says, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. What does that say about the guys who were boasting of their spiritual visions? Paul's saying, you're fools. 
He wants the Corinthian Christians to catch on to this. You see, they would not hesitate to boast about the kind of vision that Paul had. In fact, they'd write books, make tapes, videos, go on speaking tours of such a vision. And if they did, each one of them would be a fool. Paul will not be a fool, so he will not boast in this vision. Now, if I could add something here, and I'm kind of venturing off a little bit into my own speculation. You can take this or leave this, but I kind of get this feel from the text. I almost sense that it was important for Paul to communicate to the Corinthian Christians that he really did have such experiences. You see, often it's easy to think that the only ones who have profound spiritual experiences with God are the people who boast about them constantly. Or actually, oftentimes it's just the opposite. Oftentimes, the people who boast about them the most really have them the, the, the rarest. And the people who don't say anything have the most wonderful and profound experiences with God. I almost have the feeling that Paul just wants to, you know, a little bit, hey, look, you guys think maybe the, the super spiritual apostles are more qualified because they, uh, they claim all these spiritual experiences? Paul says, you know what, I have them too. I just don't talk about them. You see, Paul never talked about it, though he certainly did have profound experiences with God. The, the, the proof of those profound experiences was found in his transformed life and his powerful, truthful ministry. That's where you find evidence of spiritual experiences. You want to know the evidence of someone who spends hours or, or great quality time consistently with the Lord? Don't listen to what they say. Don't listen to it and just say, well, you know what? I just spent, you know, five hours in my time of personal devotion. You know, and it's, it's five o'clock in the morning, and this is what they're telling you. I just got back from my five hours with the Lord, you know, and, and they're telling you all this stuff and, and on and on and on and, and whatever. You know, don't listen to that. Look at their life. That's where you'll find whether or not they've really been before the face of God. So Paul felt it was important to mention this experience, but he didn't dwell on it in any way. He wasn't trying to sell himself to the Corinthian Christians. In fact, he holds back from his description. Did you notice that he says, for I forbear in verse 6, because he didn't want to persuade the Corinthian Christians that he was just another super apostle. That's what he means at the end of verse 6, when he says, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. If the Corinthian Christians looked at Paul and said, you know what, you're weak, you're weird, you're different than the super apostles, you know what Paul would say? He'd say, fine. I'm not trying to be just like those guys. Paul says, I don't want you to think I'm just another one of those super apostles. I want the Corinthian Christians to see the glory of God expressed in weakness, not to see me as just being as great as one of the super apostles. Paul was given a miraculous, significant vision. And he doesn't tell us hardly anything about it. That's it. That's all you're going to hear about this vision for Paul. That's gone. It's over. Don't expect anything more in the rest of this chapter about this vision. It's done. And why was he even given it? First, he was given it for you and for me so that he would benefit, or we would benefit, from what the Lord showed Paul. Secondly, he was given it because of what God told him through this vision. And that vision sustained him through all the trials of ministry, and enabled Paul to give everything God wanted him to give to all generations. The vision that Paul had helped him to finish his course. Now, Far more important in Paul's mind than the vision itself was what God dealt with in his heart after the vision. Look at verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Get the idea here? Paul's saying, 
I received such a remarkable heavenly vision. I had such a profound spiritual experience with God. The abundance of the revelation, he talks about it, that to keep me from getting big-headed, I received a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. That means to punch me around so that I wouldn't be exalted above measure. Apparently, Paul's vision, Paul's spiritual experience was so impressive that it would have been easy for him to become exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He could have gloried in himself or he could have caused others to glory in him because of his experience. Now, by the way, do you notice something inherent in verse 7? It tells us that Paul was not immune to the danger of pride. No one is. One commentator said, the best of God's people have in them a root of pride or a disposition to be exalted above measure upon their receipt of favors from God not common to others. And so, to prevent being exalted above measure, Paul was given something. What's he given? Look at verse 7. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. In this Paul reveals the real reason for telling his heavenly vision. Didn't you get frustrated by Paul telling you that heavenly vision? It's like, Paul, why did you even tell us that you had it if you're not going to tell us any of the juicy details? Because Paul says, I don't care about the heavenly vision. I'm just using that to show you why I was given the thorn in the flesh. The heavenly vision was unimportant to Paul. I'm not going to tell you anything about it, he said. But let me tell you about the thorn in the flesh. Now, there's a lot of different thinking about this thorn in the flesh, what it was in Paul's life. Apparently, everyone could see the thorn in the flesh that Paul suffered from. It was no secret. His heavenly vision was a secret until now, but probably everybody saw the thorn. Some among the Corinthian Christians probably thought less of Paul because of the thorn in the flesh. They're like, well, he's not very spiritual. Look at that thorn in his flesh. But they didn't know anything of the amazing spiritual experience that lay behind it. And if you notice something here, what does Paul say? This is amazing. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. He says that it was given to him. He considered this great trial, this thorn in the flesh, to be a gift. He doesn't say, there was inflicted upon me a thorn in the flesh. No. There was given Now, what is a thorn in the flesh? When you and I think of a thorn, we usually think of something that's a minor irritation. Remember when you were barefoot as a kid and you'd get stickers in your feet and you'd do the hot foot for a little bit and then just get them out and it's not that big of a deal. But the root word that Paul uses here for a thorn doesn't describe something like a thumbtack. It describes something like a tent stake. That's what it's more like. In the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the word here for thorn shows something which frustrates and causes trouble in the lives of those afflicted. It's not a minor, petty little irritation. It can be a debilitating wound or injury or affliction of some kind. Now he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, this is strange. In some strange way, the thorn was both given to him by God, but it was also a messenger of Satan. Isn't that curious? But I don't know if you understand that that can really work in your life. God can allow something for you that's essentially a gift to you. But Satan wants to come and use it as a messenger for his purposes and his destructions. I believe that whatever the specific thing that that it was that was afflicting Paul, and we could go on and talk about it, and we will in a few moments, but whatever it was, God probably said to Satan, Satan was probably frothing at the mouth all the time, let me get a Paul, let me get a Paul, let me get a Paul. 
So finally, God said, okay, you can do this to him. Satan rubs his hands and goes, yes, I can get him. And he sends out a messenger. You, go, afflict Paul with this. Yes, I can finally get in some digs against Paul. God just says, that's my gift to Paul. It's going to accomplish my purpose. It's going to do something good. God had a purpose in it all and, and allowed Satan's messenger to successfully keep Paul from being exalted above measure. That was a good thing. Now it also says there in verse 7, that the messenger of Satan buffeted Paul. I like that word buffet, not buffet. It's not like Paul was subjected to endless buffets, which is a thorn in the flesh of a completely another type. But to buffet means to strike with your fist. It means that this messenger of Satan punched Paul. He felt that he was being beaten black and blue by this messenger of Satan. Now, just stop right here. Can I? Whoa, wait a minute. You telling me Paul punched about by the devil? Who would have thought it? Right? Isn't Paul the guy who stands up, just kind of hitches up his robe, and the devils flee? They're afraid of him. No, Paul's saying, I was getting beat up by the devil. Listen to what Alan Redpath says on this point. He says, perhaps you have looked into the face of a Christian who's always smiling and who never seems to have any worry, is always happy and radiant. And as you've thought about your own circumstances, you've said in your heart, I wish I were he. He seems to have no problems. He doesn't have to take what I do. But perhaps you've lived long enough, as I have, Redpath says, not to know, or not to not know that, or to know that, excuse me, that sometimes the most radiant face hides great pressures. And often the man who's being most blessed of God is being most buffeted by the devil. Paul says, I was being beat up. As I think about this, I think it's interesting to consider what a counselor without a biblical perspective would have said to Paul. He makes an appointment, comes in, and, you know, wow, I got this problem. I got this thorn in the flesh. I feel like a messenger of Satan is beating me up black and blue. So he tells the counselor about his great infirmity, about his troublesome thorn in the flesh. And Paul says, how I feel weak and powerless to continue against. This is wearing me out. You might imagine that the counselor might say, well, Paul, what you really need is you need a positive mental outlook to meet this problem. But Paul, what you really need is is to see that the power is within you to conquer over this infirmity. You should look deep within the inner man for the resources for success. Maybe the counselor would then tell Paul, what you need is a support group of caring individuals. Or he'd say, "Uh, Paul, no, what you really need is, if you had faith, you'd be delivered from this thorn in the flesh. What's wrong with you? Now, Some of this advice might be good for different people in different circumstances. Paul takes his advice to the wonderful counselor. He has something different to say. Look at Paul's visit to the wonderful counselor, verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Well, Paul prayed. Thorn in the flesh? Affliction? Messenger from Satan? Paul says, look, I'm not having any of this. I'm going to pray. You know, Paul believed what he wrote. When he wrote in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul did that. I got this problem. It's a thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger from Satan. What's going on? I better take it to the Lord in prayer. So Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. In fact, Paul repeatedly prayed about this thorn in the flesh. You know, I kind of imagine the scene in my mind, something like this. The thorn in the flesh first appears. And Paul says, well, this is no problem. I'll just give it to the Lord in prayer. And he prays about it. It's still there. Well, that's funny, Lord. Let me pray again. And so nothing happened. He goes, wow, this, this is a tough one. And he prayed again. And when nothing happened after praying the third time, I think Paul knew then God was trying to tell him something. Although some people think that Paul is using a Hebrew figure of speech that really means much more than three times. 
For example, G. Campbell Morgan says, that does not mean three times. It's the Hebrew figure of ceaselessly, continuously, over and over again. But we know it was at least three times, if not more than that. And might I say, this makes me stand back and just plain scratch my head at the folks who say that it's unspiritual and evidence of little faith to pray for something more than once. You ever hear that crowd? Do you pray for it? You pray for it once, brother. If you got faith, you just pray for it once. That's all there is to it. And these are usually the same kind of people who think that they've gone beyond the Apostle Paul. They've gone beyond him and that they, you know, they're at an advanced point beyond him and maybe Paul could learn a thing or two from them and their great walk of faith. As I mentioned last week, such people should be glad that we live in an age that no longer burns heretics because, wow, that's an affront to go along and say that you're greater than the Apostle Paul. Not that I would favor burning them. No. I don't want anybody to take that, that at all. You know, somebody let the air out of their tires or something, but not, not burn them, for heaven's sakes, no. Of course, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times, but so did Jesus, Right? Jesus prayed with the same words three times in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. There was nothing wrong with Paul's prayer here. Paul prayed a good prayer. It's not like God in heaven was saying, well, you know, Paul, I would have taken the thorn of the flesh away, but you didn't say, mother, may I? Come on, you know, come on, you didn't ask the right way. No. God doesn't look at the arithmetic of our prayers to see how many they are. He doesn't look at the rhetoric of our prayers to see how neat or eloquent they are. He doesn't look at the geometry of our prayers to see how long they are. He doesn't look at the music of our prayers to see how melodious they are. He doesn't look at the logic of our prayers to see how methodical they are. But he looks at the godliness of our prayers. See if they really spring from a godly heart. And if you notice here in verse 8, it says how passionate his prayer was. He said he pleaded with the Lord about this matter. And I have to believe that Paul was probably surprised. Wait, wait a minute, what? I mean, come on, Lord. You know, I, Paul was a man close to God. He he had the heart of God. He wouldn't have prayed about it unless he felt God wanted to take it away. But then it's not, what, well, what's, I pleaded with you, Lord. I'll, I'll plead again, he says. And notice what he prayed for in verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul's initial prayer was to escape the suffering that the thorn in the flesh brought him. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul was no masochist. When he suffered, his first instinct was to ask God to take it away. Paul, well, I'll be the devil's punching bag for a while. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity. No! Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul had an affliction. Lord, take it away. I don't want this hindering me. But when his passionate, repeated plea for deliverance was not answered, it must have concerned Paul. It added another dimension to the trial. I mean, the trial had a physical dimension. It was a thorn in the flesh. It had a mental dimension because he knew it was a messenger of Satan pounding on him. And it had a spiritual dimension because it was an unanswered prayer. Now, now it's really working up inside of Paul. Maybe now is as good a time as any place to discuss what exactly was Paul's problem. What was his thorn in the flesh? We simply don't have enough information to say precisely. But that hasn't prevented a lot of commentators and Bible teachers from giving their opinion. So why don't I give you a little survey here? Some have thought it mainly as spiritual harassment. Others have thought it was persecution. Many have suggested that it was a physical or a mental ailment. Some have thought that it was Paul's struggle with lustful or sinful thoughts. Among the earliest Christians, Tertullian gives the earliest recorded guess at the exact nature of Paul's problem. He thought the thorn in the flesh was an earache or a headache. One interesting suggestion in more modern times has been made by Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey was a brilliant historian of about 100 years ago. He offered the suggestion that Paul's infirmity was a type of malaria common to the areas where he served as a missionary. And sufferers of this kind of malaria suffer attacks when they're under stress. It's the kind of thing that kind of lies dormant in your body, but when you're under a lot of stress, it explodes out in your body. 
And when they're under one of the attacks of this during a stressful time, they feel a contempt and a loathing for self. And they believe that others feel an equal contempt and loathing. This malarial fever also produces severe headaches described by sufferers as being like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead. Maybe that's what it was like. I tend to think that it was something physical within Paul for this simple reason, because he calls it an infirmity in verse 9. He says it was an infirmity. And infirmity implies a bodily ailment. But I think the most important thing here is to notice that God had a reason for keeping it vague. God had a definite purpose in not revealing the exact nature of Paul's thorn. If we knew exactly what Paul's thorn was, then everybody who was afflicted, but not in the exact kind of way, might doubt that Paul's experience was relevant to them. You know, let's say it was this malarial fever that Sir William Ramsey suggested. Well, then we'd go here and then say, well, you know, concerning my malarial fever, I pleaded with the Lord three times. And we'd all say, well, I don't have that malarial fever. I don't think this really applies to me. But God left it vague. So whatever you're going through, whatever your affliction is, Whatever your thorn in the flesh is, you can read it in here, right here. God wanted everyone with any kind of thorn in the flesh to be able to put themselves in Paul's shoes. Paul says, I prayed. I gave it to the Lord. Now what's going to happen with it? Verse 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Maybe the most precious words are the first few words of verse 9. And he said to me, God had a response for Paul. The answer was not initially what Paul was hoping for. What was Paul hoping for? Lord, deliver me. Take this thing away. That's what Paul was hoping for. It's not what Paul was initially expecting. But God still had a response for Paul. Now, here's our problem many times, is we close our ears to God if he responds in a way that we're not hoping for or expecting. You know, we're like the kids who put our fingers and go, la, 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 when God's trying to talk to us. No, that's not what I wanted to hear, God. Paul wasn't like that. This wasn't what he was expecting. It wasn't what he was hoping for. But God still had an answer for him. Look at what an answer. Now, verse 9, at least this sentence I'll read you right now, in my Bible is in red, which doesn't mean that it's any more inspired than anything else. But it does mean that Paul is quoting something that the Lord said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, instead of removing the thorn from Paul's life, God had given and would give his grace to Paul. The grace God gave Paul was sufficient to meet his every need. Paul was desperate to be relieved of this burden. But there's two ways that a burden can be relieved. You can relieve a burden by removing the load, or it can be done by strengthening the shoulder that bears the load. And instead of taking away the thorn, God would strengthen Paul under it, and God would show his strength through Paul's apparent weakness. Now to do this, Paul had to believe something. He had to believe what God said when he said that his grace was sufficient. There's kind of a corollary to this. I don't think you can really believe that God's grace is sufficient until we believe that we ourselves are insufficient. And for many of us, especially in our American culture, this is a huge obstacle. We're the people who idolize the self-made man and want to rely on ourselves, but we can't receive God's strength 
until we know our weakness. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. Charles Spurgeon said this, Great tribulation brings out the great strength of God. If you never feel inward conflicts and sinking of soul, you do not know much of the upholding power of God. But if you go down, down into the depths of soul anguish till the deep threatens to shut her mouth upon you, and then the Lord rides on a cherub and does fly, yes, rides upon the wings of the wind and delivers your soul and catches you away to the third heaven of delight, then you must perceive the majesty of divine grace. Oh, there must be weakness of man, felt, recognized, mourned over, or else the strength of the Son of God will never be perfected in us. Paul was convinced of his own insufficiency. And then he could hear, my grace is sufficient for you. How did God's grace I mean, he could have said, my forgiveness is sufficient for you. My power is sufficient for you. My uh, holiness is sufficient. Why did he say, my grace is sufficient for you? How did that meet Paul's need at this point? Well, number one, grace could meet Paul's need because it expressed God's acceptance and pleasure in him. You see, when we receive God's grace we enjoy our status of favor and approval in God's eyes. Grace means that God likes us and he's favorably disposed towards us and we have his approval and promise of care. Grace could be sufficient. Grace could also meet Paul's need because grace was available all of the time. You know, when we sin or fail, it does not put us outside of the reach of God's grace. Since grace is given to us freely in Jesus, it can't be taken away later if we stumble or fall. When we come to God by faith through the blood of Jesus, His grace is always there to minister to and to meet our needs. I'd also say that grace could meet Paul's need because it was the very strength of God. So much of the power of this world is expressed in things that can uh, bring harm and destruction. But God loves to show his power through goodness and grace. I don't know, for some reason, we often associate goodness with cowardice or timidity. But when we do, we take a worldly perspective about power and strength. And we deny the truth that God's strength is all about love and grace. Grace is not weak. It's not wimpy. Instead, it's the power of God to fulfill what we lack. That's why God could say to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Friends, take that sentence, my grace is sufficient for you, from God to you, and you can emphasize any aspect of it you please. You can say, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is the favor and love of God in action. It means he loves us. He's pleased with us. Can you hear it from God? It's as if he's saying, my love is enough for you. Is it true? God's love is enough for you. No, it's not true. This has got to be fixed, Lord. It's... Someday you're going to come to the place in your life where you realize God's love is enough. It really is. Then he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Whose grace is it? Well, it's Jesus' grace. Isn't his love, his favor enough? What will Jesus fail at? Remember, Jesus suffered thorns. He cares. He knows. It's his grace that's sufficient for you. If I were to stand before you and say, my grace is sufficient for you, you'd say, what are you talking about? But when the Lord God in heaven says, my grace is sufficient for you, we recognize the source. We go, ah, it's his grace. Take another one. My grace is sufficient for you. It is right now. Not that it will be someday. Right now, at this moment, his grace is sufficient. You thought something had to change before his grace would be enough. You thought, well, his grace was sufficient once. I remember those good old days when his grace was sufficient. And you think, well, his grace may be sufficient again. 
But not now, not with what I'm going through right now. His grace is sufficient now. But no, God's word stands. My grace is sufficient for you. Spurgeon wrote, It's easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient. Even at this moment, it is enough for thee. We could come on up here and have a contest tonight. Who's going through the worst trial? And everybody could, you know, and we'd all hold up scorecards, you know? And somebody would score all tens. Wow, you're going through the worst trial of all. We could look to the person here tonight who's going through the worst trial among us and say, His grace is sufficient for you. For you, it is. And then he says, My grace is sufficient. For you. Let me just explain it from Alan Redpath. He says it best. He says, Do you see the humor of this situation? God's grace and me. His grace is sufficient for little me. How absurd to think that it could be any different. As if a little fish could swim in the ocean and fear lest it might drink it dry. The grace of our crucified, risen, exalted, triumphant Savior, the Lord of all glory, is surely sufficient for me. Do you not think that it's rather modest of the Lord to say sufficient? Well, what do you mean? You know, my grace is... God is so underselling it here, folks. It's like there you are on the shore of of one of the great lakes. Huge lake. You say, well, is it enough water for me to drink? There it is. It's all before you. You could live your whole life and you'd never finish it. Sufficient? That's understating it by a hundredfold, by a millionfold. And then he says, My grace is sufficient for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that that's how God told it to Paul. Thank the Lord that he didn't tell the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for the Apostle Paul. Because then I might have felt left out. But God made it broad enough. You can be the you in for you. God's grace is sufficient for you. What, are you beyond it? What, do you think you're so different? You think your thorn was worse than Paul's? Or that it's worse than so many others who've known the triumph of Jesus? Of course not. Why are you excluding yourself? His grace is sufficient for you. An extended one from Spurgeon. This sufficiency is declared without any limiting words. And therefore I understand the passage to mean that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to uphold you, sufficient to strengthen you, sufficient to comfort you, sufficient to make your trouble useful to you, sufficient to enable you to triumph over it, sufficient to bring you out of it, sufficient to bring you out of 10,000 like it, sufficient to bring you home to heaven. Oh, child of God, I wish it were possible to put into words this all-sufficiency, but it's not. Let me retract my speech. I am glad that I cannot put it into words. For if I could, it would be finite. But since we can never express it, glory be to God, it is inexhaustible. And our demands upon it can never be too great. Here, let me press upon you this pleasing duty of taking home the promise personally at this moment. For no believer here need be under any fear. For since him also at this very instant, the grace of our Lord Jesus is sufficient. Yes, it's for you. It's sufficient for you. For you. His grace. Your need. It's sufficient. That's why Paul can go on and say in verse 9, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, through the infirmities that Paul suffered, God made him completely dependent upon his grace and on his strength. That's where God wanted Paul. It was all for good. Paul's continued, even forced dependence upon God made him stronger than he would have been if the revelations that he received would have made him proud and self-sufficient. 
Friends, many of us think that real Christian maturity is where we come to a place where we're kind of independent of God. Let me explain to you what I mean. We feel like if we're really mature as Christians, then we've got our act so together that we don't need to rely on God so much day to day, moment to moment. That isn't Christian maturity at all. God deliberately engineered debilitating circumstances in Paul's life so he would be in constant, total dependence on God's grace and God's strength. Let me put it to you very pointedly. You might feel tonight that you're hanging on by the barest of fingernails, that everything is desperate, everything is almost lost. You're so confused, you're so troubled, Thorn in the flesh, you feel like a pincushion of thorns in the flesh. Do you realize that you may be exactly where the Lord wants you to be? Because he's going to show his grace and his strength through you. Many people see God sort of as a parent that we outgrow. Once we're mature, once we overcome certain obstacles in life, we can kind of shake off God's presence the way we shook off the authority of our parents. And some of us treat God the same way we treat our parents. We give him a measure of respect. We give him his due, but we no longer feel that we really have to obey him anymore. In our hearts, we've kind of moved out of the house. And yeah, we'll come and visit him at his house every once in a while. Give the old man a little recognition and all. We think somehow we grow independent from God. Many people harbor a longing in their hearts for the day when the Christian life will become easy. We hope for the time when the major struggles of sin, well, they're all behind us. And now we go on to bigger and better things without much of a struggle. You know, if we're really growing mature, we'll be less spiritual supermen. Yeah, we'll stand there and Satan will shoot all of his arrows at us. All his gunfires will just bounce off our chest like Superman. Yes. Very good. Yes. Go ahead. Attack me, devil. That day's an illusion. If the apostle Paul himself constantly experienced weakness. Does anybody in this room think that they're going to surpass him? In fact, the illusion of strength and independence actually leaves us in a weaker place. There's nothing more hindering the work of God than the uplifted and proud Christian. No, God wants to wipe us clean and turn us inside out and empty us before him until we're hopelessly weak and no flesh can glory in his presence and then he can show his strength through us. So Paul means it when he says, verse 10, I take pleasure in my infirmities. What, are you sick? No, Paul means it. You see, in the end, Paul does not resign himself to his fate. Okay, I'll be brave. You know, put the blindfold on me and the cigarette, and I'll go stand, I'll, I'll be brave. You're not going to see me cower before these trials in some, you know, grit-teeth resignation to his fate. No, he welcomes it. Bring it on, he says. I rejoice that God has forced me, Paul says, to rely on his grace and to rely on his strength all the more. So I say, when I am weak, then I'm strong. You know what I think is remarkable about this? I think that Paul was at such a level of spiritual strength and spiritual maturity that God had to deliberately introduce a thorn in the flesh in his life. I don't know, I'm not there yet. I provide my own thorns. Paul doesn't have to, God doesn't have to do anything unique in my life to do this. And half a look, honestly, at our life will show enough weakness to make us constantly and totally rely on the grace and strength of Jesus. But you know what? Even if you or I were to somehow grow to this place where we really were, it's sort of rising above the tide and we're just above it all. You know what God would say? Time to send down a thorn in the flesh. And God would do it. God, that's so mean of you. No, it's not. He's saying, I want my strength perfected in you. Well, just do it in me while I'm strong. No, no, that's not how it works. My strength is perfected in Weakness. God says, I need to keep you depending on me in everything. Here is something to depend on me for. This is a place of victory, not discouragement. So when Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmity, it's not the sick musings of some ascetic 
thinking that we're justified before God by our sufferings. Paul didn't seek out this thorn in the flesh, but God knew when he needed it. And so he says at the end of verse 10, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What triumph? What can the world do to this man so firm in the grip of Jesus? Now, friends, God did not allow this thorn in the flesh to punish Paul. Paul, you've been bad. I'm sending a thorn down on you. Or God did not allow it to keep him weak for the sake of weakness. God allowed it so it would show a divine strength in Paul. Think about Paul. Think about him as a man. Was he a weak man or a strong man? The man who traveled around the ancient world spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ despite the fiercest persecutions, who endured shipwrecks and imprisonment, who preached to kings and to slaves, who established strong churches and trained up leaders. That man was not a weak man. In light of his life and accomplishments, we would say that Paul was a very strong man. But he was only strong because he knew his weaknesses, and he looked outside of himself for the strength of God's grace. And if we're going to live lives of that kind of strength, we must also understand and admit our weakness and look to God alone for favor, alone for approval, and alone for that work of grace that's going to strengthen us for the task. It was the grace-filled Paul that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why Spurgeon said, From all this I gather that the worst trial a man may have may be the best possession he has in the world. That the messenger of Satan may be as good to him as his guardian angel. That it may be as well for him to be buffeted of Satan as it ever was to be caressed of the Lord himself. That it may be as essential to our soul's salvation that we do business not only on deep waters, but on waters that cast up mire and dirt. The worst form of trial may nevertheless be our best present portion. Let me sort of summarize this. Instead of using this experience, this great heavenly vision that Paul had, instead of using that, to glorify himself, just like the super apostles like to do. Paul relates how his heavenly vision humbled him more than ever. Hey, I had this amazing, spectacular heavenly vision, and you know what I got from it? A thorn in the flesh that completely debilitated me. And it made me weak so that the glory of God's strength could be seen through me. All Paul's enemies could see was the thorn. They couldn't see how and why it was there. But Paul knew. And that's why he could rejoice. And of course, the greatest example of this principle is Paul, uh, the, the principle that Paul is communicating is Jesus himself. What's more weak than the Son of God hanging on the cross? What showed the strength and the glory of God more than Jesus Christ and him crucified? Now, one last point. Some of you, this is going to be the most important thing I say all night. We should never think that in our lives, the mere presence of a thorn means that the glory and the strength of Jesus will shine in us and through. Some of us take comfort in the fact that we're going through trials. Friends, that's no comfort in and of itself. You can resist God's grace. You can refuse to set your mind on Jesus. That trial that you're going through, it's either going to push you further away from Jesus or make you draw closer to him. It's either going to make you more self-obsessed and self-focused and self-caring and introspective, or it's going to make you forget about yourself and drive you into the arms and hope of Jesus. And if you refuse to allow it to do that, if you refuse to set your mind on Jesus, you might find your thorn cursing you instead of blessing you. Spurgeon said that without the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, thorns produce evil rather than good. In many people, the thorn in their flesh does not appear to have fulfilled any good design at all. It's created vice instead of removing a temptation. So let no one here tonight 
comfort themselves with the fact that you're going through a trial. That in and of itself means nothing. What's God? What are you going to allow God to do? He's given you that thorn as a gift. 